Turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We've been studying through the book of Acts and thinking about the church and God's work as it moves forward. That's our theme this year, forward. Following after Christ and walking with Him. We've seen God already do some great things here in this church in the book of Acts. God's done some great things in our church this year. I believe the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. We're looking forward to Jesus coming back. That's why the song says, I'll never have a fear for my Lord is always near. And in Acts chapter 5, we looked at the first part of the chapter last week as we saw the sin and the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira and God's great judgment upon their sin. But through all of that, the church responded. And in verse 11 it says, And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as has heard these things. God was doing His work. You know, here in verse 11 of Acts chapter 5 is the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts. It's the first place. They had preached the gospel. They had been threatened. They had been persecuted. They had come back and preached the gospel some more. They had received the Holy Spirit. God was working. God brought judgment against sin. The people responded in great fear before the Lord. God refocused them. He gave them a new purpose, bringing them back to where they needed to be. The Christian life is not a joke. It's it's not a game. It's not something that we coast through. It's a battle. It's a fight. It's a struggle. Being on the winning side doesn't always feel like you're winning when you're in the fight. This morning I want to give you seven points of what it looks like to live on the winning side. We see this church as it goes forward and God is doing its work. There's great blessing. There's great struggle. Notice with me, beginning in verse number 12, it says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest, durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. Believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed, every one. How about 17 though? Then the high priest rose up. Then all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. What were they indignant about? Did they not like the fact that people were being healed? That the sick and the lame were healed and able to get up and walk? That people were coming from all about and seeing miracles and signs and wonders? Is that what they were indignant about? I think all we have to do is go back to chapter 3 and chapter 4 to see what they were indignant about. 
It wasn't that they didn't like people being healed. They didn't like that it was being done in Jesus' name. This world is fine for you to do all the good works that you want, but don't do them in Jesus' name. Because if it's in Jesus' name, that means someone else is in charge. This world wants to teach you that you can be a good person just by following a certain list of rules. Or that you can be a good person by following the religion like the religious leaders of that day. But there's none good but God. That's what Jesus said. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They were indignant because to heal in Jesus' name meant that there was a higher authority, there was a higher power that they had to submit to. They didn't like Jesus. In fact, they had killed Jesus. They're going to be reminded of that later on in this chapter. But you think about it. People were indignant about the good works taking place because they were being done in the name of Jesus. You can do all the good you want, just don't talk about God. Don't bring God into it. But see, without God, we have nothing. Being on the winning side doesn't always feel like you're on the winning side. I mean, look, they're they're getting all these great things done. People are coming. The Bible says multitudes were being saved. And because of the fear that was upon them, others were staying away. So you know what? If you follow them, if you get in with that crowd, you've got to be serious. This isn't the crowd, this isn't the people to follow for those who are the hypocrites. Look at what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. God was really working in the church at this time. But they came, they were filled with indignation, verse 18 says, and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Number one in your notes, if you have it there, life on the winning side, guess what? It includes problems. Surprise, surprise, right? It includes problems. Why do people live the Christian life and think, I thought it was going to be easy? I've even met Christians who've been saved for years and they keep running around in that cycle. I thought this was supposed to be easier. I don't know why it's so hard. I don't know why this is happening to me. Life on the winning side includes problems. Not everyone will be as excited about your spiritual growth as you are. Not everyone will be as excited about your service for the Lord. Not everyone will be as excited about people being saved. Don't be surprised when in the middle of God's blessing you still face trouble. Satan is not happy when God's work is getting done. And he's going to do whatever he can to stop it. I've shared this several different times this week. But I just can't get away from it. I've been studying through Psalm 119 and uh, sharing devotionals each morning on Facebook through that. And I was in the kind of the middle part of the chapter of the psalm this week. And this verse just grabbed me. Verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Well, that's a tough verse. Good? And affliction, how do those things go together? Well, the rest of the verse helps us to understand that I might learn thy statutes. Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes that it's better to go into the house of mourning. Why? Because it's there that we learn, that we pay attention. When life gets hard, it helps to bring focus. It helps us to be 
intentional. But for some, when life gets hard, we, we just throw up our hands and want to quit. But when you're on the winning side, you don't quit when it gets difficult, right? As the saying say, goes, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, right? The Christian life is not about being tough so much as it is walking with Jesus. But when you're on the winning side, you know where you're going, you know who you're serving, you know what you're doing. So don't be surprised when problems come. Sometimes you know you're doing the right thing just because you're facing opposition. If it was always easy, we'd wonder if the devil was really real or not. Life on the winning side includes problems. But we have a transition in verse 19. Because it says, but the angel of the Lord, by night, opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, yes, life on the winning side includes problems. Number two, life on the winning side enjoys divine intervention. Isn't that great that God's working and then the religious leaders, they come out, they throw them in prison. Here comes the problem. What are we going to do now? Is anything too hard for God? No. He said that, you know, with Abraham there and gave him a son even in his old age with his wife and she was elderly as well. And, and a prison is no problem for God. God's with you if you're walking with Him. He's with you in the prison and He's with you outside of the prison. In the book of Acts, we have multiple stories of believers being thrown in prison and in jail for preaching the gospel. And sometimes God got them out of prison. Sometimes God left them in prison. Prison is not a problem for God. But in this particular instance, God says, All right, I'm going to send my angel down and bring them out of prison. You know, if you want to experience divine intervention and seeing God at work, you need to be right where He wants you to be. Where was God? He was right there with them in prison. Why was He with them in prison? Because they were walking in obedience to Him. A lot of times you will not experience God's working in your life because you're not where God wants you to be. If you'll get back to where God wants you to be, you'll get to experience God's work in a way that sometimes it's just, you have to say, it's divine intervention. I mean, he sends an angel and lets these guys out of prison. You say, does God do miracles? He absolutely does. It was a miracle that you got saved. Paul told the church in Corinth, and such were some of you, after he lists all those horrible, wicked sins. You know, you look around in our place today if you look in the mirror this morning i hope you could look in the mirror and say thank you lord for saving me because without you i'd have nothing it's a miracle when god provides sometimes you feel boxed in i don't know where i'm going to go i don't know what i'm going to do i don't know how i'm going to figure this out it's no problem for god if he can send an angel to let these guys out of prison, if he could send his angel, remember old Daniel down in the lion's den and, and close those lions' mouths? Can you imagine spending a whole night sleeping in a cage with lions and then waking up in the morning 
as it seemed like Daniel was, pretty well rested. The king was worried. Daniel wasn't. Oh, king, <laughs> live forever. God has sent his angel and closed the lion's mouth. Life on the winning side gets to experience God doing his work, performing miracles even, doing things that other people say, I don't know how that could even be possible. Look at verse 20 and 21 because the angel had something to say, had a message from God to these apostles. The angel said, go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. I love that description of the gospel, all the words of this life. You see, because walking with Christ is life. It's the only life. It's real life. It's fullness of joy. And what did the What did they do? Verse 21, And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. Now, if you had just been locked up in prison for preaching and teaching the gospel, and God sends His angel and lets you out, are you running right back to the same place and preaching the gospel? Or are you going home and hiding out? These guys were obedient. That's number three. Life on the winning side demonstrates obedience to God's Word. Obedience to God's Word. These men experienced the power of God because they were willing to obey the Word of God. Romans chapter 1 talks about the power of God unto salvation. Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20 talk about God's power. He says, all power is given unto me, go ye therefore, right, and teach all nations, baptizing them, the Great Commission. If you want to experience the power of God, you must be willing to be obedient to God's Word. If you want to experience God's blessing and God's provision and God's miracles, it's a miracle when you get to share the gospel with somebody and see them trust Christ and get saved. But you know, you don't get to enjoy that miracle if you weren't sharing the gospel in the first place. Somebody's got to go. Paul asked the question, how shall they hear without a preacher? You know, the preacher's not just the pastor of the church. The, the preacher is any person that goes and declares the Word of God. How shall they hear? Who's going to tell them? Life on the winning side demonstrates obedience to God's Word. They were commanded to go back to the temple and to speak, to speak all the words of this life. And the Bible says, when they heard that, they went and did. They taught. They did what God told them to do. Look at the end of verse 21, though. There's a lot of back and forth in this story. They start out preaching the gospel, they get thrown in prison. God sends an angel, lets them out. They go back and preach, but... The high priest came, middle of verse 21, and they that were with them and called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man 
within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. There's so much going on right here. I want to take just a moment to illustrate it for you. Because life on the winning side defies human comprehension. So logically, what happened? They're locked in prison. So when you lock a guy in prison, where do you expect him to be the next morning? In prison, right? But instead of in prison, where were they? They're in the temple preaching. All right? So they're supposed to be in prison, according to the religious leaders. God says, no, I want you in the temple. So where were they? In the temple. Now, meanwhile, as they're preaching in the temple, the religious leaders all gathered together. They got their counsel together. This was serious stuff. They might even put on their fancy robes for this one. You don't know. They were coming together. They were going to have a meeting. They were going to pronounce judgment on these guys. So they all get together. All right, we're ready. You ready? Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Okay, we're all ready. Send for the prisoners. You can imagine this. I mean, this is what's going on. And what happens? Here goes the little, the little messenger guy, the guard. He goes down the prison. Hey, they're ready for the prisoners. The guards are standing at the door. You know, they're big, tough guys. Probably almost as big as me. They're standing there. And they look around. Okay. They get their big keys off and unlock and open it up. And they're gone. So they send back to the... They're gone. We don't know where they are. And there's this back and forth going on as, as these guys, they're very logical, they're very serious, they have a plan, they're getting ready to judge. It's all, you know, this is the way it's supposed to be and they're running back and forth, not knowing what to do. And then all of a sudden, someone comes running in and says, oh, those guys you're looking for, they're back in the temple preaching. It's funny to me when I read this, what God was doing to spoil the plans of the, of the great, smart, wise, religious you know, well-studied, well-educated, the people who were in power, the people who were in control. I mean, they controlled the people. They controlled the prison. They controlled the guards. They controlled everything, but they didn't control God. And God sent them up here, and they're up preaching in the temple. Well, meanwhile, these guys are frustrated over here. So now the tables have turned, because before they were preaching, they go, and the Bible says they throw them in the common prison, right? Put them in the common prison. They laid hands on them. When the Bible talks about laying hands in this sense, it's not like, you know, anointing somebody with oil laying hands on them. No, they grabbed them and they put them in prison. But the story changes because now when they come back to the temple, the Bible says they're afraid of all the people. And so then they do it quietly. Hey, uh, we know you were already in prison and you got out. We don't know how, but you got out. But would you come down and meet with, with us? Please, (laughs) pretty please, you know, I don't know. But they bring them down and they come back. It says it right there. Lest they they feared the people, they brought them this time without violence. Because they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. The high priest and the council were assembled to judge, but they had no one to judge. The prison guards were at their post guarding, but there was nobody inside the prison. Human authority will always be overcome by heavenly authority. 
God is in charge. Even though when you're on the winning side, it may not always feel like it, but living on the winning side often defies human comprehension. What took place went against their logic. They had threatened the apostles, and now it was these same religious leaders who were afraid themselves of being stoned by the people. When you live on the winning side, you will experience God's provision, His direction, and His faithfulness in ways that may not make sense to everybody else. To the outside person, they say, well, you're just lucky all the time. No, it's not lucky when you're walking side by side with the one who's in charge of it all. Because when God wants to get it done, He gets it done. When I'm walking with my Heavenly Father, I don't have to fear what man can do unto me. I'm on the winning side. It's not to walk around with arrogance and pride because the longer you do that walk, if you're faithful in it, all you can do is say it's only by His grace. But God, only through His strength. Help me, Lord. It shouldn't cause pride. It should bring about humility in our life. Don't be surprised when God works. Walk in obedience to Him and trust Him to take care of you. If you're serving the King of kings and Lord of lords, when God is on the move, Nothing and no one can stand in His way. Life on the winning side defies human comprehension. Number five, we're moving quickly and you're doing a good job. You're keeping up. Number five, life on the winning side requires Bible convictions. Look at verses 27 to 32. So they brought them back, this time gently. When they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? One commentator made the point, it seems as if the high priest did not want to speak the name of Jesus. They referred to him as this name. And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That's an ironic statement. Now, they didn't mean it ironically, but it's ironic that they said this, to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, who had crucified Jesus in the first place? It was this group. Now, it's also interesting because if we think about this theologically, Yes, it was the high priest that had taken him. It was the Romans who'd put him on the cross. But it was the sins of every single one of us that hung him there. But they didn't want Jesus' blood on their head. It already was. So Peter, he answers. All the other apostles with him, they answered together and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Life on the winning side means having some Bible convictions that say, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to follow His Word. I'm going to do what He says, not what everybody else says. God's my judge. God's in charge. He's the king. Obey God first. 
But notice his message here that he preaches, this little answer, sermon. He he says in verse 30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Think about the one preaching this, Peter the denier. God uses anybody. He uses anybody. You say, well, I've, I've, I've done some bad things. I, this is cool what God's doing in Acts 5. But I don't think God could use me. If God can use Peter, He can use you. Verse 31, Him, Jesus, hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are as witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey Him. You're going to have Bible convictions. That means I obey God first. It means I'm going to preach the gospel. Peter and the other apostles were preaching the gospel in the temple. Of course, they'd already been threatened. Go back just a couple chapters before that. They were being threatened for preaching in the temple. They go back and they do it again. They're thrown in prison. Angel lets them out. They go back and preach in the temple again. They're arrested and brought before the judges, before the religious leaders. What do they do? Preach the gospel again. Their message was pretty simple, wasn't it? I think the Apostle Paul, wasn't it, that said he determined not to know anything except Christ crucified? You and I spent a lot of time fighting and arguing and being distracted by a lot of things. And God put us here to preach the gospel. Our message is simple. Christian, don't get caught up in a lot of other stuff. There's a lot in this world to distract you right now. There's a lot to get you frustrated and get your eyes. You don't think the devil's happy to give you more things to talk about as long as you're not talking about the gospel? These religious leaders couldn't even say the name of Jesus. We told you not to speak in this name. Peter does. He speaks in the name of Jesus. Who? Who? Which, which name, right? The, the God of our fathers, Jesus, that raised up Jesus? The one that God has exalted to be prince and savior? That's the one? You can almost think that he's, he's having this conversation with them. The one who came to give repentance to Israel? Their salvation was not through keeping the law. It was through Jesus who fulfilled the law. You religious leaders, you're teaching that following the law is the way to God, but following the law is just a schoolmaster to teach us that we can't follow God on our own. We need Jesus who fulfilled the law. They preached Christ high and lifted up, preaching repentance and forgiveness. If you'll repent, God will forgive you. And they preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. They said in verse 32, We are witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey Him. It's great to be able to live and to walk and to work in the power of the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean there won't be problems on the winning side. But life on the winning side means that we will get to enjoy divine intervention. It is something where we must demonstrate obedience to God's Word. Life on the winning side defies human comprehension and it requires Bible convictions. 
Do you have any Bible convictions this morning? Are you so convicted about the power of God to save lives that you'll share the gospel no matter the cost? Sometimes we're more convicted, or we have more conviction, I should say, about a a sports team or about what's going on in Washington than we do about the gospel. It's not wrong to have those convictions, but I think we need to have Bible convictions that result in preaching the gospel to others. That's quite a message Peter preaches. That's bold. It's strong. All the other apostles are with him. Look at what happens in verse 33. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Literally, this idea of cut to the heart is like they were cut in half. They were just laid wide open. God, through His Word and the power of the Spirit, brought such conviction on these religious leaders. They were cut to the heart. The Word of God is quick, right? It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the joints. And Marin is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Sometimes we look at these religious leaders and say, why did... Why did Jesus hate them? He didn't hate them. He loved them. He died for them. Remember when He hung on the cross? What did He say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And even now, as they hear the gospel once again, they're cut to the heart. But instead of responding in humility and faith, the Bible says they took counsel to slay them. They said, we're going to put these guys to death. We don't know how to silence them. We've tried to throw them in jail. We've tried to threaten them. Nothing works. So let's put them to death. God had already used an angel to let them out of prison the first time. Now God uses a very different source. He uses one of the religious leaders, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Now, when you read this passage, understand Gamaliel's not a super Christian here. He's one of them, but he does have some wisdom that he shares with the rest of the group. And God, working through this man, Gamaliel, who, as far as I know at this point, is not a believer, God uses him to change the minds of these men who are ready to kill the apostles so that they can continue the work. You know, God can use angels to set people free from prisons. God can also change the hearts of even wicked people to allow God's work to still go forward. Notice what happens here with Gamaliel. Follow along. There's a bit of a story here. It says in verse 34, Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people. This is a man of great reputation. And commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. He said, let's send these guys out a little bit so we can have a private discussion. And what does he say? Verse 35, he said to them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody 
to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves who was slain. And all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. So he tells a story about this man, this guy named Thutis. He was somebody. We don't know who. He just thought he was somebody, right? He told everybody, I'm somebody, and a bunch of people decide to follow him. Understand a little bit as I read through this, the history of what's going on in the land of Israel at this time. They're under the Roman authority, right? They're being oppressed by the Romans. They're paying taxes. They're paying tribute to the Romans. And so there were a number of these little insurrections that popped up as different guys would get together a little group of soldiers and they'd go out and fight against the Romans or have a little bit of guerrilla warfare here or there. They'd try to upset the supply lines. They'd try to mess with and frustrate the Romans because they didn't like the fact they were being oppressed. So Gamaliel says, there's this guy Thutis. He got 400 people together. But what happened to him? He was slain. He was killed and all his obeyed him were scattered and brought to nothing. So then Gamaliel goes on about another man, a man by the name of Judas of Galilee. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing. This sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Romans said, we need some more taxes. Raise the taxes. People said, we don't like that. Judas would have been a good American, right? And so he got a group of people together and said, we don't like these taxes. And he drew many people away, much people after him. But what happened to him? He also perished. And all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. There are lots of people that will come along and raise a bunch of noise and, and get excited about something, but Gamaliel's counsel to them is, just let that be. Because he says then in verse 38, And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, let them alone, for if this counsel or if this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. God used Gamaliel to sway the opinion of this council. If it be of God, he says, you cannot overthrow it. God will win in the end. I'm glad I'm on the winning side. But life on the winning side, number six, that's where you're at, rejoices even in suffering. Because notice what happens. Gamaliel changes their minds. It says in verse 40, And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, just for good measure, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Here it is again. This time we're beating you, telling you not to do it. They've tried everything. But notice verse 41. The response of the, the apostles here is very important. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Life on the winning side rejoices even in suffering. Why? Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His 
suffering, being made conformable unto his death. Think about these apostles, many of the men that were gathered there, the ones who had just been beaten. Many of these were the same ones who weren't able to even sit up and pray with Jesus one hour in the Garden of Gethsemane. They went to sleep. If my study's correct, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but when it came time to be at the foot of the cross, only John was there. The rest of the disciples had scattered. See, the first time around when it was Jesus who was suffering, they wanted no part of that. Peter was the one who pulled his sword and chopped the, you know, the high priest's servant's ear off. But other than that, and then he denied Christ three times. Judas betrayed him. John was there with Mary, and the rest went and hid. These are just normal people. Sometimes we look at these guys in the Bible, these men and women, and say, wow, look at them, they're incredible. They're just normal people. But they're normal people who, yes, they struggled, yes, they failed. But when God got a hold of their life, God used them to do amazing things. They were able to rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. To be able to be counted worthy to suffer shame for God's name means that you're willing to serve God even when it gets difficult. It means you're willing to go with Jesus when others would go elsewhere. That you'd be willing to continue to walk with Him. Remember, the, the power comes, the blessing comes, the encouragement comes when you walk with the Lord. But also the suffering comes when you walk with Him. Some people say, well, it'd just be easier not to get involved in all that stuff. To just sit on the sidelines. To watch while others are doing it. The problem is the ones sitting on the sidelines, the audience, they're not the ones getting the trophy at the end of the game. Right? Sometimes... I think you may be like me, have enjoyed learning in our country's history as men and women have given their lives for the cause of freedom. And I enjoy watching movies and stories and reading books about some of the great sacrifices that these people have given for our freedoms. And I look at that stuff and I think, wow, they went through some very difficult things. I remember one man, he's with the Lord now, J.D. Sibley. He earned a purple heart as they were going up the beaches of Iwo Jima in World War II. He was one of the deacons at the church when I was ordained. His name's on my certificate in my office. He went through some incredible suffering for our country, for our freedom. But you know, when you talk to somebody like that, Do you ever feel like, wow, I wish I could have been worthy to experience what he experienced? I wish I would be brave enough to stand and to follow through. I wish I would be the one who would 
be able to sacrifice. You see, with suffering can come great rejoicing when you realize in that suffering is an opportunity for fellowship with the one who has experienced the greatest suffering of all. I enjoyed learning and hearing from J.D. Sibley, but there was something, a bond with him that I would never have like he had with some of the other men that suffered alongside of him because they went through it together. You know what I'm talking about. If you've been through something difficult and you meet somebody else who's been through something similar, it gives you a bond that other people just don't understand. If you're willing to go through suffering and walk with God, even when it's difficult, if you trust Him through the difficult times, there's a special bond and relationship, special thing to that relationship that comes. And there's an opportunity for rejoicing in those who would say we are, we're counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Let me finish up. His life on the winning side rejoices even in suffering, but verse 42, number 7 in your notes, life on the winning side continues in Jesus' name. They'd been through it. This is all in just a matter of a, of a day or so. They preached. They've been thrown in prison. The angel sets them free. They go back and preach. They get brought back before the council. They're threatened with death. God works to change the hearts of the leadership, but they're still beaten threatened, told not to preach the gospel, and then set them free. But what did they do in verse 42? And daily, in the temple, and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. You know, after you or I had been through all that, maybe we say, well, I'll go preach the gospel. I'm going to go do it where nobody else knows about it. They went right back to the temple. Notice where they went. They went to the temple, and then the Bible says, and in every house. That's a great little example for us, right? We're not just here to stand up in the church and declare Jesus. You've got to go to every house. Because there are some people that won't come to the church to hear. You've got to go to their house. And I think perhaps some of what was happening as they were preaching the gospel and People being saved in the temple, now they're going back to their houses and they're opening up God's Word together and studying God's Word together. Maybe another family, what are, what are you doing? Another family member comes by, well, let me show you what God did for me. And people being saved in the temple, people being saved in their houses. And the Bible says they didn't just do this once in a while, they did it daily. This is convicting to me. Is it convicting to you? After all that they'd been through, they daily, in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. So they continued to teach and preach Jesus. They continued to teach and preach Jesus everywhere. And they continued to preach Jesus everywhere. Every day. Every day. When you came in this morning... We gave you a little card that says Easter Invites. I am burdened for our church. that We do everything we can to share the gospel. Even if it's as simple as just inviting somebody to a service where they're going to hear the gospel preached. 
And so I would ask you in the next few minutes as we close the service that you consider some people that you could write down, that you could begin praying for and begin sharing the gospel with and or inviting to church to hear the gospel. In the first service this morning, not to challenge you or anything, we had almost 25 names turned in in the first service. Here's what I want to do with these cards. You don't have to put a lot of detailed information, just put names. As our church gathers for prayer on Wednesday night, we're going to share these cards out and let people pray for these names. Hopefully you'll keep praying for these names on your own and that you put on the list. Throughout the week, each day, I'm going to take all these cards and pray for these myself. I'm going to ask you to begin praying and inviting with me so that we could be faithfully sharing the gospel. Listen, I realize sometimes we think, well, I've invited a lot of people, but they don't come. Well, generally the ones you don't invite don't come either. So invite them, encourage them, pray for them, and let's see what God does. And if they don't come to a church service, that doesn't mean you have to stop sharing the gospel with them. In fact, you may have much better opportunity sharing the gospel in their house. Which probably means you need to actually get to know your neighbor's name. Don't just drive by folks and miss them. This past week, we took our kids on Tuesday night and we went down to Buffalo Bayou Park looking at the beautiful downtown skyline, walking along. And everywhere you look, there's people. People riding their skateboards, people flying by you on their bicycles. Be ready to jump off the trail. People feeding the ducks. People sitting on the grass, watching movies on their... That kind of blew me away, like, why do you go to a park? with all this beautiful scenery, and then stare at a computer screen and watch a movie. But that's what they were doing. I'm getting old, I know. It doesn't sound fun to me. But the Lord just, I, I just felt so burdened as I looked around at all those people. And I made a comment. I think I said something to you, Shandy, and I remember saying something to Trevor as well. I said, who's going to tell all these people about Jesus? You ever just, yesterday I had to go to Home Depot and get some fertilizer, weed and feed. This year it's like weeds and more weeds, right? It's, the freeze kills the grass, but not the weeds, right? It was packed yesterday. I took Caden and Carissa with me, and it's like, why did we even come today? You know, just people. And then I thought, who's going to tell all these people about the Lord? You know, I may not get to tell everybody at Home Depot, everybody at the park, but I can tell my neighbors. I can tell the people on my street, the people that God puts me into contact with. And if we'd each be faithful to do that, in time, the whole world would hear. And it actually wouldn't take all that much time at all. So I'm going to invite you this morning as part of our invitation. This is how, one way you're going to respond this morning. Write a few names down. We have, even from this morning, family members, neighbors, friends, co-workers. Whoever God would bring to your mind that you say, I'm going to be praying.
praying and I'd like my church to pray with me. Why? Because this is the example of a church of people that lived life on the winning side. They knew that the troubles would come. They weren't surprised. They experienced God's divine intervention. They they went through life and understood that even going forward for the Lord means that sometimes things aren't going to work out like I expect or anybody expects. It defies human comprehension. But they daily continued in Jesus' name. Life on the winning side continues in Jesus' name. Would you join me this week in prayer and then in going? Some of us will be going out during the week this week. Maybe you can go out by, with your coworkers, your neighbors, or people you come into contact with. You can come join us this Saturday, this coming Saturday, 1030. There's going to be a group of us. Brother Billy's in charge of that. We're going to have a group go out right here in our community. We've got just a a little area around our church blocked out. We said we want to make sure every house, every residence in this area gets at least an invitation, an opportunity. What might God do? You know, if even just one person came to Christ, it'd be worth it all. We say that, but do we live like that? Are we living like we're on the winning side? Like we know that God's winning and, and we know what's going to happen in eternity? Or are we sort of just living, pressed down, waiting, hoping that maybe my life will get a little easier? Listen, I hope there's something much more exciting this week than you getting some more free money from the government. Wouldn't it be much more exciting if somebody got saved this week? Yeah. yeah. It's way more exciting. Money comes, money goes. That money won't change your life. But the gospel can change your life. The gospel can change somebody's life. Trust in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Him, come. In just a moment, we're going to bow our heads and close our eyes. Some people are going to be filling out their cards. Some people are going to be coming and praying for the people that they've already written on their cards. Say, God, save them. God, give me the courage. I mean, these guys were beaten for their faith. I can at least go and give somebody an invitation to an Easter service. Lord, help me to do that. So however God is working on your heart to respond this morning, I want to invite you to do that. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And then after I pray, you stand to your feet, the piano will play, and then you come. You respond. You do what God wants you to do. Lord, help us now. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of these men that you use. But God, it's your power on display, your spirit at work. We know that nothing can stand against God. We are on the winning side. May we live in that truth and in that reality and be willing to daily share the gospel wherever we go. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.